All right, well, welcome to uh, Dirt Bike Church. My name's Chuck Leemaster with Team Faith. Always a privilege to be here, privilege to be your racetrack pastor. And let's just go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for bringing us to this place. Uh, it's been a tough week. There's been a lot that's happened in our, in our country, in our world. And uh, we are looking to you for guidance. We're looking to you for hope. We're looking to you for sense of it all. And so, will you meet us in this place tonight? Just calm us down, open our hearts to hear what you've, uh, what you've put on my heart, and give me the words to open my mouth and communicate your truth. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we look forward to what you want to do in us tonight. So, in Jesus' name, I close with that. Amen. Yeah, so it's been, it's been a tough week this week. You know, we've, we've had uh, the, the news has been focused, at least in my life, I like to watch the news and be aware of what's going on, and so I was shocked and saddened when I woke up Monday morning with the news of what happened out in Las Vegas. And I know that Las Vegas has a reputation, Sin City and all that, and I have, uh, in, in my past, my previous life, I like to call it, have been to Las Vegas and have partook in everything that you shouldn't, and say, man, I hate that place. But on the other hand, there are a lot of things there that uh, there's a lot of talent in that town. A lot of people go there. I was there uh, after I surrendered my life to Christ. I was actually there for a work conference a couple of times. And one time I got to go see Jay Leno uh, live and in person. And he's, he was hilarious and just off the cuff, just, just rattling the jokes off. And, you know, the, the Route 91 Harvest Festival was certainly something that I easily could have been at. Matter of fact, I had a friend, a co-worker that I used to work with about 15, 20 years ago, and she was there with her aunt and uh, was on the front row of that concert when things started happening, when the, when the shots started firing. And she shared her story. She wrote a blog and shared her story. And it was terrifying just to read it and understand that, man, I know her, her. Her aunt, thank God they're both okay, but her aunt took a bullet right across the top of her head. And it was just, you can't, we can't imagine. And, and our, our hearts and our minds are, we're just captivated by this story of, of, man, again, are you serious? I mean, we've already, we've already dealt with this. It seems like we see, we're dealing with it a little bit more often. We had, what did we have a couple years ago? Orlando, we've had Fort Hood and, and San Bernardino, and, and of course there's Sandy Hook and there's Columbine and all these, all these shootings that have happened in this country. And, and our hearts cry out and we say, we say, why? And, and we're left here with, you know, if you watch the news... And you watch what's going on in the culture around us. That's the question that everybody's dealing with this week is why? Why would this possibly, why could this happen? And, and the answer is, it's actually very simple. As a Christian, you already know the answer. Because there's evil in the world. There is unchecked and unrestrained, in some people's hearts, evil in the world. And as we, But as we look at this this week... And you look at shootings, and maybe you, I, I, I researched a lot. The history of shootings in the United States and the best statistics that are out there are heartbreaking statistics about school shootings. And if you go onto Wikipedia and you just check history of school shootings in the United States, you'll find out that school shootings actually aren't, um, they're not new in this country. They've been around since before we were even a country, but... You can see that, that they happened, but not on the scale that we've had today. Matter of fact, if you just do a, a, a recent history in school shootings, you'll see that the 60s, 70s, and 80s 
all had about the same number of shootings, the same number of casualties, the same number of deaths and throughout the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. But then came the 90s, and in the 90s, the, the, the number of incidents about doubled what it had been in the 80s. And the number of deaths almost doubled in the 90s. And, that's, and in the 90s, there were, there were 88 deaths in school shootings alone, including the 15 that were killed at Columbine, which brought this issue into national attention. In the 2000s, 2000 to 2010, there was also about the same number of incidents. There were 61 incidents of somebody going into a school and conducting a shooting, but the, the body count, the death count, climbed from 88 to 104, and that included 33 at Virginia Tech, if you remember that. And that was 61 incidents. From 2011 to yesterday... There have been 133 incidents of school shootings so far in seven and a half years, resulting in 128 deaths, including the 28 that were killed at Sandy Hook a few years ago. And our hearts hearts break, but there is a very distinct parallel to the number and incidents of school shootings and the deaths that occur in school shootings, there's a very distinct parallel track, almost as if it was a train track. And, and that is, 1962 is when we see the start of it. 1962 was the year that the Supreme Court ruled on Engel versus Vitale. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Engel versus Vitale. This is when the Supreme Court took prayer out of public school. This is when the Supreme Court said it is no longer lawful for there to be a prayer at the beginning of school. Prayers out of the court, out of schools rather. A year later, in 1963, the Supreme Court ruled on Abington School District versus Shimp, and the Bible was removed from public schools. And the decisions, the decisions made said that we should not have mandatory prayer and we shouldn't have mandatory Bible readings. In other words, don't force Christianity on the people because. That uh, you, now you're bordering on a state-mandated religion, which is against the Constitution. If you read, if you read the First Amendment of the Constitution, it says that the, in the Establishment Clause, it says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And so the Supreme Court ruled no mandatory prayer, no mandatory Bible reading in school. But that very quickly became broadly interpreted to mean no prayer in school, no Bible in school. In 1968, just five years after the Bible was removed... From school, Epperson versus Arkansas, the Supreme Court ruled that you can't not teach evolution. Okay, follow me on that. You can't not teach evolution. In other words, you have to allow evolution to be taught in school. And that was almost immediately transformed into evolution was the only thing taught in schools. You see, I wasn't alive back then, but apparently it used to be that you would go and you would learn about creation and you would learn about evolution, or maybe you would learn about evolution. And now, you know, as of 1968, the Supreme Court said, you have to be able to teach evolution in school. Very quickly, the Bible started to go away. In 1987, so fast forward almost 20 years, Edwards versus Aguilard. This was, uh, Edwards was the Louisiana governor at the time, and, uh, and he sued to be able to teach the controversy, a curriculum called Teach the Controversy. Because the Bible wasn't being taught in school at all. It was only evolution. And so the Louisiana governor said, teach the controversy. We've got to be able to share creationism or intelligent design, if you will, 
and evolution, and the Supreme Court ruled, no, you can't teach the controversy, you only teach evolution, and evolution became basically the law of the land when you go into, when you go into uh, the public school curriculum. And there's intelligent design, uh, I understand that there are intelligent design mentions, but by and far and away in science classes, it's evolution. It seems like every time we turn on the television, you turn to the History Channel, you turn to the Science Channel, wherever you go, you even listen to the news, you find out that the Earth is 4.54 billion years old. You Google it. It's a fact. That's just what it is. And that's what's taught. And that's actually legally what's taught in our country these days. Unfortunately, since evolution became the law of the land, these, these don't make prayer and Bible mandatory rulings have actually involved into don't be a Christian out loud, don't be a Christian in public. 2015, you guys have heard this, it's, it's made headlines. 2015, Coach Edwards, Coach, I'm sorry, Coach Kennedy was kneeling on the 50-yard line after a football game, high school football game, and, uh, and said a silent prayer just as he had done for the last seven consecutive years. Every single football game, he would go out on the field, he would kneel, and he would say a silent prayer. The school administration received a letter commending him on this, saying, hey, it's really great that you've got a coach that takes leadership and says a prayer in the field afterward. That's really great stuff. The school administration said, why? He's doing why? He can't do that. That's illegal. You can't do that. And they told Coach Kennedy, if you do it again, you're going to lose your job. He did it again. He lost his job. Now, now, um, First Liberty got involved. First Liberty is a civil rights organization that fights on the side of, Christ, of Christians or Christianity. They go head-to-head with organizations like the ACLU. First Liberty took up the case, and, uh, and they, they are pushing it forward. They went, to the, um, they went to the Ninth Circuit Court there in Washington State. If you're familiar at all with uh, politics, uh, the Ninth, Ninth Circuit Court, if I can get it out, the Ninth Circuit uh, would not surprise you to learn that they struck down this appeal. And so this is going to go all the way, hopefully, to the Supreme Court of the United States to say, can you say a silent prayer in public on a public football field at a high school? But this is where we're at today. Here's, a, here's another story that hits a little bit closer to home. August 27, 2016, just a little bit over a year ago, 18-year-old Colton Osborne of Charlotte County, Virginia, passed away after an ATV accident. Following Osborne's passing, the community decided to erect a memorial bench in his honor. The bench was placed right next to the Randolph-Henry High School baseball field because Osborne loved the sport of baseball. On this bench is engraved, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. Last week, WSET, a Charlotte County ABC affiliate, broadcast that superintendent, the school superintendent, Nancy Leonard, says that the Bible verse has to go. Until that Bible verse is removed from the bench, the bench has to go. And, they, and she cites the Establishment Clause in the Constitution, the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. However, did you know that that's only part of the sentence in the First Amendment? The full sentence in our Constitution in the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, comma, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Constitutionally, we have every right to exercise our free religion just as we are doing right now. We are in a public setting, and GNCC, thank God, has given us the go-ahead, the green light. They've embraced us. They support us and say, yes, please, bring the church to the racetrack, public setting. We have the right to, that's, that's part of what makes America so great, 
is we have the right to exercise our religion, whatever that religion happens to be. In this case, Christianity. But it seems with every time you turn on the news, you're finding out that Christianity is getting shot down. Now, I suspect that this, this case with the park bench is going to go, that First Liberty will probably pick up this case, and they're going to fight it. They're going to, they're going to send letters. They're going to fight it in court, whatever they have to do. They probably will prevail just like they did in Texas. In Texas, the, uh, the Texas cheerleaders in Kuntz, uh, Counts High School in 2012 used to set up, uh, have these tear-through banners that the football team would run through, and, you know, the tear-through banners as they come out during opening ceremonies or whatever they call that for a football game. I'm a dirt bike guy. I know opening ceremonies, Supercross, whatever they do on the football field. The, the guys come running through this paper banner. They rip it open. The cheerleaders say, yay, go team, or whatever the cheerleaders say. And, and then on these tear-through banners, these cheerleaders were writing scripture verses. And the, and the school said that you can't do that. They actually got shut down. This was in 2012. Last week, a Texas appeals court said it is okay to have scripture on the tear-through banners. Five years, hundreds of thousands of dollars later, just to protect their constitutionally protected right for free speech. And what was on these tear-through banners? Crazy things. But thanks be to God, which gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15:57. Another one of their tear-through banners was... If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. I can do all things through Christ. Let us run the race with endurance. These were all horrible things that they're writing. I mean, what, what are these girls thinking? We've got mass murderers trying to come into our schools, and we're worried about Bible verses on a banner? What's wrong with this country? Evil. We already said it. Evil. That's exactly what's wrong with this country. We have, we have propagated the idea that there is no God, and we are systematically kicking God out of schools, out of our workplaces, out of our society, and what fills the void? Satan. Evil. <laughs> That's it. And so we get Las Vegas, the deadliest mass shooting in modern history. And yes, I'm aware of Wounded Knee, and that was terrible too, and I will not deny Satan has been alive and he has been active for thousands of years. Matter of fact, uh, Ephesians 6, 12, Apostle Paul reminds us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This, my friends, this is Satan's world. You remember Jesus when he was being tempted by the devil? He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. At the end of it all, Satan comes and tempts Jesus directly one-on-one. -on -one. The last temptation of Christ, the devil takes him up to a high place, and he says, look at this. This is my world. This is my kingdom. If you will bow down before me, I will give it to you. Now, the first time I read that, with you know, thinking about what I'm reading, I'm like, well, Jesus, you ought to just tell him, this ain't your world, Satan. This is my father's world. You know, Jesus all the time is talking about his father, his father's kingdom, and he's talking about the kingdom to come. But Jesus does not rebuke Satan. Matter of fact, Jesus just paraphrases a verse from Deuteronomy. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He didn't say this isn't your world, Satan, because actually it is. This is Satan's world. We look back to the Garden of Eden, and we see that God actually allowed it. And that troubles us. But when you understand that God's desire was to love us and to be loved in return. And you can't have love without choice. And you can't have choice without free will. And then there's, there's that choice. 
And we, mankind, we chose to do our own thing. And evil entered into the world. And that battle, that battle has been raging ever since. And so, so what do we do? The question that's being asked in our nation today is why? And we know the why. We know it's evil, but what? What do we do about it now that we're here today? What do you and I, what do we do about it? I want to turn your attention to two passages tonight. First one's going to be Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. This is taken from the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus, one of his earlier sermons. He's up, the Sermon on the Mount. This is a really cool passage where Jesus takes everything that you think you know and he turns it upside down. He says, you think that murder's wrong? Well, I'll tell you, just being angry at your brother is wrong. You know that adultery's wrong? Well, looking at a woman with lust is wrong too. And then he says this. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And we're thinking, oh, no, man. Seriously? With, in light of Las Vegas, this is what we have to turn the other cheek? Let me tell you. This is one of the most debated passages in all the Bible. Because for, for most people, they read that and they think exactly what I just explained. Really? Pacifism. This is the way that this has been preached almost all the time, is that, that it's pacifism. But we don't see that in the life of Jesus. Twice we saw Jesus go into the temple and overturn the money-changing tables. And so, without being a first century Jew, we probably aren't going to understand the full extent of what Jesus was saying. For example, at the time that Jesus said this, there was a Roman law that said that a Roman soldier could conscript you to carry his equipment for one mile, but not for two. So if Jesus says, carry it the extra mile, what does that mean? Does that mean you're getting a soldier? I don't know what that means if you're getting a soldier in trouble. At that time... The left hand was considered unclean, and you don't slap somebody with the left hand. So if you got struck in the right cheek, that means it was a backhand slap. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm not a first century Jew. <laughs> but let me explain to you what it means to me. You guys remember what was happening six days ago, six and a half days ago? Think back. It was Sunday before the Las Vegas shooting. What was dominating the national headlines and the national news? There was football, that's right, there was football, and there was protest over the national anthem, right? That was just totally dominating everybody, the news everywhere, everything was about, and it seems really petty right now. You know, now we're looking at 58 people dead, over 500 people were wounded by this madman. Seems kind of petty that we were arguing over a song, but it wasn't just a song. I'm a veteran, okay? I signed up. I did four years in the Army. I actually was in the infantry uh, when I signed up. I, it was for pure patriotism reasons. I graduated high school in 1991. I'll just save you the math. I'm 44. <laughs> and, I, and so as we, we dominated the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and so I go to the recruiter station. I sign up. I enlist. I want infantry. He says, no, we don't want to get You're too smart for that. Can you believe that? I know you guys aren't going to believe me when I say that, but seriously. They said, you're too smart for the infantry. I said, well, I ain't signing up. Give me the infantry. I'm going to shoot lots of guns. And that's exactly what I did. I served with distinction and honor for four years, 1992 through 1996. I remember very clearly being down in Fort Benning, Georgia, middle of summer, 
the south heat, the humidity, full battle dress, drilling ceremony, the flag, the national anthem. This is what you do. This is how you stand. This is how you salute. And the drill sergeants, man, we spent hours on this. Hours on what you do when the national anthem plays. What do you do when you're in uniform and you walk past a flag? The drill sergeants would like to mess with us. Can you believe that? They'd only mess with us maybe, maybe 10, 15 times an hour. You know? And so they, they put this carrot out there and they say, hey, I'm going to ask you guys a question. You know, they try to be nice and play your friend. And every once in a while, they actually were nice and play your friend. Like, if you get this question right, you can go in chow line first. You know? And you get the question right, you actually get to go get the cake. You know? It's great. Most of the time, they're just trying to trick you so you can get down and beat your face, do push-ups. So they asked us this question one time. They said, let's suppose that you are home, you're on leave, you're in civilian clothes, you're at the homecoming parade, and the band comes marching by you playing the national anthem. What do you do? I said, well, you stand at attention. Beat your face. That's the wrong answer. You go out, you tackle the band director, and you beat some sense into him because nobody moves during the national anthem. When the national anthem's playing, if the band is marching, they're wrong, and you need to correct it, soldier. I have very strong feelings about what you do when the national anthem plays. We wouldn't have that flag. That flag would not fly if it weren't for the hundreds of thousands of gallons of blood that backed it up. So I got into a debate last week on social media about the protest and the flag. And I explained to this guy about why you show respect to the flag, the blood, veterans well hey you know it's not a protest against the veterans i said man you can say whatever you want but your actions speak louder than words if i were to go into a customer's office i'm in sales if i were to go into a customer's office and slap him in the face and then say hey you need to listen to what i'm saying to you do you think that would work it wouldn't because the real world doesn't work that way i'd lose my job might even get arrested i'd certainly lose a customer and then the guy that I'm debating with, he comes back at me and he says, but that flag, it stands for freedom and liberty and justice. I was like, yes, exactly. So you're protesting freedom and liberty and justice. And what went on said was, you're a moron. If you're going to protest freedom and liberty and justice, and I'm like, oh yeah, end zone dance, spike the ball, points on the board, I win. Just a matter of hours later, I started getting into the same discussion, same talking points, the same old, same old, with a Christian friend of mine who's also a pastor. Actually, Rob Lewis used to be a freestyle motocross rider for Team Faith. Now, anybody that hits a ramp and goes 30 feet in the air and takes their arms and hands off the bike, you wouldn't think they'd have a brain cell to spare. But Rob Lewis is super smart. He's way smarter than me, and he's, he's an, a very effective pastor and he's got some really deep insights sometimes, and I'm starting to debate. And this, I'm just going to read you what he wrote to me. This is my friend Rob. After I'd said all this about the national anthem, he says, Ultimately for us Christians, our allegiance isn't to a flag. It's to a king and a kingdom. If this is true, then we lay down our rights in many ways to bring about healing and truth and love. Being ambassadors of Christ's love even when we are oppressed, our freedom is taken, and the things that we love and honor are disrespected. And the wind went completely out of my sails, and Matthew 5.38 rang through my head. 
turn the other cheek, give up your coat, walk the extra mile, give to the beggar, loan out your stuff, be wrong when you know that you're right, or even better, lay down your rights. (laughs) In other words, lay down your right to be right. As a Christian, with your eyes on the prize, with your eyes on the eternal kingdom, you lay down your right to be right. <laughs> you know, politics, that's how it is, man. If you, and even if you're not into politics, you have an opinion. Everybody here had an opinion on the flag. Everybody here has an opinion on gun control. And that's the next big debate that's going to be raging through your social media feed for the next few weeks is gun control. How you handle that difference of opinion with other people is going to reflect whether the love and hope of Jesus Christ shines through you or not. You guys ever hear of C.S. Lewis? He was a famous Christian author, 1940s. 1942, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters were, were a mature demon named Screwtape who's writing letters to his protégés, teaching them how to confuse and pull us, you and me, the common people, down into hell. Here's what, uh, here's what uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in 1942. This is screw tape writing. He says, My dear Wormwood, be sure that the patient, that's you and me, be sure that the patient remains completely fixated on politics. Arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things that the patient can control. Wow. Way before Facebook, right? 1942, C.S. Lewis has nailed the modern age to the wall for sure. And so, what does that mean, though? What does that, does that just mean, does that mean that we always turn the other cheek? Does that mean that we never drive the money changers out of the temple? Does that mean that we disengage from standing up for what's right? This is where I want to turn your attention to the other passage that I mentioned, Acts chapter 16. This is a a story about the Apostle Paul and his sidekick Silas. Paul and Silas, they're uh, they're in Philippi, and they've met this lady named Lydia. And they're, they're going to her house, and it turns out Lydia's accepted the gospel. She's become a Christian, and they're going to Lydia's house all the time, and they're, they're actually starting to set up a little bit of a church here. And, uh, and this is what Luke writes. Luke is the one that wrote the book of Acts, and he says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Weirdness, I know, you know, stuff like that is make-believe. But wasn't there a crazy lady at the concert last week said something about y'all are going to die here? She got escorted. I'm not saying, I, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't meet this girl. But some crazy lady had something to say about something that was going to happen in the future. But, you know, demons don't exist. You know what's easier to believe than there is no God? Yeah, we've got a lot of people that believe there is no God. But, you know, there are a lot of people that believe that God exists. But you know who they don't believe in? Satan. Satan. Fortune-telling. Demon possession. That's kind of weird. But then there was that one lady. She brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It's kind of, I don't understand this. This this demon-possessed girl is speaking the truth. These guys were servants of the Most High God. 
and they were telling you the way to salvation, you would think that the father of lies, Satan, would say something else. I don't know how it all works. Maybe this girl was using a sarcastic tone. Maybe she was screaming it. Maybe I don't know exactly how it went down, but this girl followed them around day after day. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Luke goes on. He says, She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I love it. The Apostle Paul, man, he was humid. He got annoyed. And he turns around and he casts the demon out of this girl. And it comes out. Of course, that means that the girl can no longer tell the fortune of, of people that she comes in contact with. And so that means that her owners, her slave owners, aren't going to make any more profit off of her. Kind of upset them. And so they, they organize a citizen's arrest and they drag Paul and Silas before the, the magistrate. And they say, these Jews are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or to, pra- or to practice. In other words, they're breaking the law. And it was a really, it was a very vague um, accusation. Nothing really specific except they're Jews and they're, you know, they're, 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 causing, they're causing a problem and they're Jews. Do something. These crazy Christians, man, they're putting par- Bible verses on park benches. Do something. The crowd joins in and attacks them, and the magistrates gave orders to beat them with rods. Then they threw them into prison and told the jailer, make sure these men do not escape, so the jailer fastened their feet in stocks inside the inner prison. Nice and secure, these guys aren't going anywhere. Now, here's the thing to notice. Paul and Silas completely had their rights violated. These guys couldn't even name a law that they broke. And Paul and Silas got beat with rods, got locked in a stockade in a, I assume, a dark, damp prison. (laughs) And actually, not only that, not only did they get accused of some vague, made-up crime, but what they were doing was in the name of Jesus. What they were doing was for God. Matter of fact, I kind of wonder, what took Paul so long? Why did, why did he not set that girl free right off the bat? What was taking him so long, Paul? But anyway, he did something good for the kingdom. He did something good for God. <laughs> and where's God in this? It seems like they're punished for doing right. They're falsely accused. Culture is in opposition to them. It's a clear violation of their First Amendment rights, which, you know, 1,700 years before there's a First Amendment. But go with me on this. What did they do? Being in a situation where they had their rights clearly violated, where they clearly had reason to be angry and upset, what did they do? Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. (laughs) I'll be honest with you, it's not what I would be doing. I might be praying, but it would just be to tell God how he needs to do his job. Paul and Silas, man, they're praying and they're singing songs and they're ministering to the other people that are in the prison. This is like a ministry opportunity for them. They're not bitter. And I just got to wonder, is this what turning the other cheek? Is this what that looks like? Suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everybody's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, that's a little strange. (laughs) <laughs> the jailer woke up. Seems to me as you read through the Gospels and you read this story in Acts, like 
those Roman guards, they slept a lot, man. <laughs> like I said, I was in the Army Infantry, man. I never fell asleep on guard duty. You wouldn't dare. You wouldn't dare because you'd get, you'd get knocked around by the drill sergeant or whoever. But in this case, the guard saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself. I would think that if the penalty for sleeping on the job is death, I'd probably stay awake, but whatever. He's about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved in your whole household. Wow. The jailer comes and says, There is something different about you. You handle yourself so differently. Praising when you should be crying. Praying when you should be cursing. I know you don't deserve to be here, but the way that you've handled yourself in this situation, you've affected, positively affected other prisoners that were around you. And now I need to know, what is it about you that makes you different? Jesus. (laughs) They said, it's Jesus. You see, my reaction to the injustices in my life lead to opportunity to show the world what it needs most. Jesus. I'll say it again. The injustices that happen in my life are an opportunity to lead other people to Jesus by the way that I handle those. He says, what is so different about you? And they say, it's Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one that changes perspective. You understand, there's the earthly perspective. There's the earthly perspective of gun control, and there's the earthly perspective of the national anthem, and then there's the eternal perspective of heaven and hell and relationship with God and separation from God and sin and eternal judgment and condemnation and eternal heaven, relationship with the one who created you. You see, there's the eternal perspective. This is just an earthly perspective. And Paul was so good at focusing on that eternal perspective And it changed the way that he dealt with the earthly perspective. You see, I'm treated fairly for the sake of the name of Jesus. And he says, okay, I'm not bitter. I'm trusting God. I'm praying. How can I be used in this situation, God? And the landscape of eternity was changed. Because that very night, that jailer and his family came to know Jesus. And they were all baptized. Now watch what happens next. When it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. In other words, yeah, they kind of screwed up when they arrested you and threw you in here, but they're letting you go now. And we say, oh, you know, see, that turn the other cheek thing, it really works out. You know, whatever was meant to be will be. (laughs) I can't even say that. I hate that saying. Whatever was meant to be will be. I don't think so. You see, We were created with a brain and we were put in place and we were given the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And there are things that we need to do and there are times that we need to step up. Remember a couple weeks ago, if you were with me, we talked about Paul again. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. 
says, I'm not ashamed. And in this situation, Paul had no problem standing up. He said, hold on a second. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison, and now they want to throw us out secretly? No, I don't think so. He says, let them come themselves and take us out. Paul, Paul didn't have any problem throwing down with them. He says, you were wrong. Apologize and don't do it again. You see what Paul is actually doing here is he is paving the way for the spread of the gospel. By standing up for his rights as a Roman citizen, he paved the way for the spread of the gospel. The next time you read about the church in Philippi, this time when you're reading about Philippi, you're reading about a woman named Lydia and a handful of people who like to pray down by the river. Next time you hear about Philippi, it's in the book of Philippians. A whole letter written to a church that is thriving and doing extremely well. Paul stood up and said, no, I don't think so. You violated my rights for no reason. Come and, fix, come and say you're sorry and don't do it again. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So then they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. They didn't leave the city right away. They visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And the church was born. <laughs> you see, by all means, we should be standing up for the spread of the gospel. If there's one thing that we learned this past week, it's that this nation needs God. We need the truth of the gospel. We need park benches with verses on them of encouragement. We need teenagers to stand up and speak the truth on football fields. We need coaches and male and female leadership to stand up and be the example in prayer and in all areas of life. This nation ultimately needs God. And we aren't going to win them by focusing on the earthly kingdom. But when we focus on the eternal kingdom, amazing things happen. So sure, you have an issue, contact your congressman. Be involved, be aware, be engaged. But love your neighbor. Turn the other cheek. Give up your coat. Go the extra mile. Give up your right to be right. Sing while the culture treats us unfairly. And as you sing... And as you pray, the light and the hope of the gospel will shine through you and change the landscape of eternity. God, it is my prayer that we leave this place with courage and conviction. First, Lord, my prayer is that every single person here will come to know you through your son, Jesus, that will accept the free gift of salvation and then secondly, Lord, that we will live into that, that we'll realize that we are changed people and that we have an eternal hope within us, an eternal hope that the world so desperately needs. The world is so, so confused that they're turning to evil to fill the vacuum from where we've kicked you out of our lives and out of our nation. We repent of that and we ask you, Lord, to be the God of our lives. Start with us, start with me and do your eternal work through us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great race.